Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. Good morning. It seems odd to be uh, talking about an important topic like sex while I look into the corner of the church at two cameras and there's a blinking light facing me. Uh, a conversation on sex usually would want to be in some kind of relational conversation about this great topic. And if you were in the church in the pews, I would probably pose the question like this just before the sermon. I'd say, um, who told you about sex? Or who taught you about sex? And then if there was a bit of a gasp or silence, I might say, okay, let's just go with this question. What's your favorite body part? My attempt would be to invite us to engage with the conversation about our bodies and who taught us about our bodies and who encouraged us, who encouraged us about our bodies. Our bodies is the topic of our conversation today as we think about soul and sex. Let us pray. Spirit, may you be present in our hearts as they beat one with yours, that we be one in this conversation. May we hear the right word for the living of this conversation. Amen. I had a preaching professor in New York at Union Theological Seminary named James Forbes, a very famous uh, American preacher. He was in Time Magazine, actually. And I remember him bursting into the class on preaching and saying to us, I want to die either preaching or making love. If you don't feel that way, don't go in the pulpit. His passion was preaching and making love, and they were together, and they should be lived out in the same way. Preaching and making love. It's an inspiring call, you might say. And when I pause and think about it, there are many parallels between making love and preaching. Both require foreplay. Both require deep attention. Both require breathing. Both require the senses. Both require patience. Both require consent. Both require good communication. Both require vulnerability, trust, honesty, and nakedness. James Forbes was quite a preacher and quite a lovemaker. If you heard his preaching, you were deeply aware of his passion and his desire to share his faith in a passionate and lively way. There's lots to say about soul and sex, and this sermon is a lot longer than it should be because it really should be a conversation. But nonetheless, as we move through this series of the soul of, sexuality seemed to be an important aspect of this series and a connection to the soul. And I'm keenly aware that often sex and soul don't go together very well in church. In fact, it's like money. People don't wanna talk about money in church and they probably don't wanna talk about sex in church, or do they? Recent headlines in our newspaper just 10 days ago about a racialized shooting in Atlanta by a man who grew up in the church, grounded in the church, who was addicted to sex, wanted to kill Asian women, thinking that he was actually killing his addiction, and were horrified. Or we might open the newspaper and read about yet another sexual abuse scandal in the church. 
and we're left with horror and sadness. And the church has been harmed by bad theology as we have divided the soul from the body and though soul and body were separate and the body was sinful and the soul was pure, we followed Plato's description of the body and spirit as being separate, the body bad, the spirit good, awaiting preparation for eternal life in heaven. Or it is one of the founding fathers of the church, St. Augustine, who had his own sexual problems, who called desire mud. There's a lot about sex and soul and institutional church that makes them not go together. And there's been lots of this tragedy between this deep connection between soul and sexuality that has been silent over the years or have spoken, spoken in a negative way. Even during this COVID pandemic, the Globe and Mail had a great article, another victim of COVID-19, sex between couples. And the story in February 27th talks about a survey where 1,500 adults last spring when the pandemic hit said that nearly half of them said their sex lives were in decline. And the story goes on about how hard it is to work at home and maintain the curiosity that a coupleship might provide when it comes to sexuality. But I say to this, all of the news, all of the stories, all of our history about the division and divorce between sex and soul, is there anything good the church can say about this deeply important connection, soul and sexuality, because they are deeply, deeply connected. As I thought about this, and I thought about the topic of soul and sex, I thought about 2012 in this very sanctuary. It was the summer of 2012 when the book Fifty Shades of Grey became a very popular book. People discussed it in coffee shops, on the subway, in the parks, in the streets. Some people laughed at it and mocked it. Some people whispered stories about it. And someone said to me, you should do a sermon on that book. And I quickly said, sure. Before I knew it, I was standing in this pulpit talking about Fifty Shades of Grey. Finally, CBC got a hold of it and they were here as well. And this book, Fifty Shades of Grey, became a sermon topic. The book is not well written. Maybe you read it. Maybe you'll go get it now. It's actually in our church library. It's a story about Christian. I love that his name is Christian and he is a dominant male who's very controlling of his wife or of his girlfriend, Anna. The whole story is about dominance and control. It's a terrible story, really, but it provided many people a good conversation about what they like sexually, what they don't like, what's healthy sexuality, what is unhealthy. It was an incredibly thought-provoking conversation starter with people. Someone told me this past week that it was the very first Sunday in this church. I don't know if it was talking about that that kept them here, but they still are part of this church. Fifty Shades of Grey was the sermon. In that sermon, I shared many things about my ministry and how sexuality had come up in conversations privately with people. People who had shared their stories of suffering sexual abuse. People who had suffered, suffered religious and sexual abuse. The sadness of male impotence crushing a marriage. Couples who had affairs that ruined their marriage couples who had affairs that deepened their marriage, young couples working out the challenge of polyamorous relationships. Look that one up. I had to. 
the pain of family members addicted to porn, the horror and sadness and tragedy of rape, the loneliness of people seeking partners, and those who struggle with sexual addictions, and those who discover deep, gratifying, joyful sex between them and their marriage. All of these topics came up in that Fifty Shades of Grey sermon, and that book was the impetus to a healthy conversation on sexuality. In that sermon, I used words in stories like erection, masturbation, orgasm, fellatio. Now, on that particular Sunday, it happened to be a baptism Sunday, and there was a grandfather here for the baptism. He wasn't a churchgoer, but as he left the service that day, he said to his family, I'm not really a churchgoer, but if you talk about this kind of thing in church, I could be converted. Who would have thought that erection, masturbation, orgasm, and fellatio would convert someone to Jesus? I'm certainly missing you in this sanctuary. I hope that might have got you a little bit of a chuckle. The reality is this gentleman died just a few months ago, and I did his funeral. And the family reminded me of that story of him being in the church that day when we talked about the real life stories of sexuality and how it perked his interest and brought a smile to their family as they thought about that baptism. Here's the thing. Sexuality is such an important topic, and in his books like Fifty Shades of Grey, from the public sphere that bring the public sphere and the Bible together. And we have to say to ourselves, what is the connection? Now, the fact is the Bible is not the best book to go to about sexuality, and maybe that's why we've been quiet about it. There's a great book I've been reading or rereading this week called Unprotected Texts, Unprotected Texts. And there's a quote from the author who says this, biblical teachings regarding desire, marriage, and the human body are entirely inconsistent and yet thoroughly fascinating in the Bible. If one book recommends polygamy, the other recommends celibacy. If one reveals erotic desire, the next warns that desire is evil, a source of nothing but trouble. If one book assumes that women should be prophets, the next book tells them to be silent and sit down and be quiet. If one assumes that children and property are the aim of human life, the next book longs for sex-free life of angels. The Bible does not offer a systematic set of teachings or a single sex code, but it does reveal sometimes conflicting attempts on part of people to divine sexual morality and to do so in the name of God. The Bible is conflicted in its stories conflicted in its understanding about sexual morality. Let me share a few stories just as an example. Perhaps you could, if you're wanting to know about sex outside of marriage, you can go to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a story of the relationship between Ruth and Naomi, where Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, suggests that if she's looking for a partner, she should wait till Boaz is drunk and asleep and go down and slip under the covers and lay at his feet and know him. You see, in the Bible, to know someone literally meant to have intercourse with them. And so she was being encouraged to go and sleep with this man, and then they would become husband and wife. And so there was a bit of manipulation happening in this story. At seminary, it was always a very fun thing to say, I want to get to know you. And the other person would reply, in the biblical sense, but you see, even in that story, and let's continue on. How about polygamy? 
There's a good one. What do we do with Solomon, who has 700 wives and hundreds of concubines? And you got to say to yourself, why do you need concubines if you have 700 wives? What about the beautiful story of David and Jonathan, the story of intimacy and love and trust? Or what about the story about adultery, where a woman is caught in the in the task of adultery and the the crime of that day is stoning and Jesus walks up and says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And all you hear is the dropping of stones. A beautiful story of Jesus setting her free, but where's the guy in this story? Was he there with a stone? Did he sneak out of town? While there is compassion by Jesus, there's something missing in the story. Where did the guy go in this story? Or if you want your, want your classic story, a beautiful story, look at David and Bathsheba. It's the basis of Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah. David, who is, comes out in the evening and is walking along the terrace of his house, looks over across the alley and sees Bathsheba, who is bathing. And he says he wants her, and so she is brought to him, and he has sex with her. And he, he doesn't want Uriah, Bathsheba's husband to know about it. And so David, being the king, is able to put Uriah on the front line and be killed in battle so no one will find out. What a great story about this David and Bathsheba. This King David, this David who's in the windows of our church, is the one key in this story. You want a story about gang rape? You only have to go into the book of Genesis and the story of Lot who when two angels come to visit him, he he invites them into their house and feeds them. And then the the men in the town come and want these visitors out into the street so they can have sex with them. And Lot says, no, don't have sex with them. Here, you can have my daughters. And invites them to be raped by the crowd. You see, the Bible isn't a particularly good book to go to if you want to talk about good sex stories. The complications, the contradictions, the challenges are something that seems so foreign to 2021. And you say to yourself, is there anything good in that book about sexuality? And yes, there is. There is the Song of Songs, which you heard today, a beautiful poetry between two lovers. Phrases like, kiss me, Make me drunk with your kisses. Your sweet loving is better than wine. You are fragrant. You are myrrh and aloes. All the young women want you. Take me by the hand. Let us run together. My lover, my king, has brought me into his chambers. We will laugh, you and I, and count each other better than wine. Your breasts are like clusters of grapes. There's still scant bits of scripture that could invite you to that beautiful, lustrous, thinking and imagination around sexuality, but the truth is the Bible isn't particularly the best book to go to when we want to think about appropriate ways to live sexual desire. So what do we do about all this? Yes, we talk about it. Yes, we engage in conversation. And yes, we descend to the soul because perhaps the soul provides an answer to this connection between soul and sex. Thomas Moore wrote a book called The Soul of Sex, and he writes these words. Sexuality embraces many things that are very important to the soul. Things like beauty, appreciation for beauty, body, sensuousness, pleasure, 
intimacy, and even friendship. These are all issues that are most important to the soul. They're not terribly important to the mind or to the ego that wants to get ahead in this life. They're not nearly as important, but you know, we don't give a lot of attention to beauty. We can live quite cerebral life, or we can live a now life full of machines and computers and that sort of thing. But sex is especially important for the soul because it has all these values that are basic to it. So the two go together. To be sexual and to be soulful are very close to each other. To be sexual and to be soulful is to be very close to each other, he says. You know, as I think about this, the connection between soul and sex, I'm very aware of the connection between the contemplative practice and sexuality. The words associated with the contemplative practice are very much associated with what you might call a healthy sexuality. It's kind of like the parallel between preaching and lovemaking. They come together as one because vulnerability, trust, and honesty are required in preaching and they are required in lovemaking. Both require attention, both require breathing, both requiring attention to our senses, both require patience, both require consent, both require openness, and both require nakedness. I think that contemplative a community and the contemplative understanding of what's important to delve to the soul is very important when we think about how sexuality delves us to our soul. These are deeply sexual in nature and they're deeply powerful connections to our soul and to the creator. I want to close with a few thoughts on this. First, I want to say, don't go to the Bible for a guide to sex life. There's great books out there. Number two, a relationship is key. We are called to a relationship with ourselves, perhaps to another, but ultimately to our creator. Solo sex can be deeply fulfilling and can meet our needs. We don't need a partner. I spoke with a person this past week who shared the fact that after being married 30 years and now on their own, they have found more love and more connection to their soul and their body than they did their entire married life. We don't need a partner to be fulfilled sexually and soulfully. The third, don't, people don't talk about their sexual lives very often. And I wonder if as an exercise on your next date night, you might be willing to share the story of your sex life. As an example, I was kissed in grade six by Jennifer Stanchowski. I'll never forget her name. But who are the people that you've shared intimate sexual life with? Where's the craziest place you made love? Where's your favorite place to be touched? What if you could engage in that kind of depth of conversation with your lover and your partner? It requires trust to do this, vulnerability and intimacy, but that's what soul life is. I mentioned books, Charlotte is 10, and she asked about sexuality and I went to the bookstore and I bought a book that I bought 
15 years ago with my other kids called Perfectly Normal. It's a book for 10 to 15 year olds. And I was telling Charlotte that when her older siblings who are now well into their 20s were reaching that age of curiosity, I had a talk with each one of the three. And I said this, and they reminded me of it. I said, our bodies are a beautiful thing. Be respectful in exploring each other's body. Pornography is not real. And keep your story about your sexual encounters between the two of you. It's not locker room conversations. Books can be helpful as we explore more deeply who we are and how we might live our sexual body that is deeply connected to our soul. Finally, our souls are our bodies. There is no separation. Our souls are our bodies. Bodies matter. Touch matters. Bodies are a gift. The body is form. The soul is formless. Both sides of the same coin. Oneness. The heart is the most important sex organ. And lovemaking is our way to the soul. It is the greatest of our callings. May you and I wonder and imagine and celebrate our bodies and love them as they are loved by God, a way to connect most fully to ourselves, to our lover and our creator in a sacred, soulful dance. That's what I think. What do you think? Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.